Section One of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume Three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume Three by James Boswell, Section One. Having left Ashbourne in the evening, we stopped to change horses at Derby and availed ourselves of a moment to enjoy the conversation of my countryman, Dr. Butter, then physician there. He was in great indignation because Lord Mount Stuart's bill for a Scotch militia had been lost. Dr. Johnson was as violent against it. I am glad, said he, that Parliament has had the spirit to throw it out. You wanted to take advantage of the timidity of our scoundrels, meaning, I suppose, the ministry. It may be observed that he used the epithet scoundrel very commonly, not quite in the sense in which it is generally understood, but as a strong term of disapprobation, as when he abruptly answered Mrs. Thrale, who had asked him how he did. Ready to become a scoundrel, madam, with a little more spoiling you will, I think, make me a complete rascal. He meant easy to become a capricious and self-indulgent valetudinarian, a character for which I have heard him express great disgust. Footnote. Boswell, it is, he said, so very difficult for a sick man not to be a scoundrel. He called Fludger a scoundrel, apparently because he became a Whig, he used to say a man was a scoundrel that was afraid of anything. Whoever thinks of going to bed before twelve o'clock is, he said, a scoundrel. Mr. Croker points out that Johnson in his dictionary defined knave, a scoundrel, sneak up, a scoundrel, rascal, a scoundrel, loon, a scoundrel, lout, a scoundrel, poltroon, a scoundrel and that he coined the word scoundrelism. Churchill, in The Ghost, describes Johnson as one, who makes each sentence current pass with puppy, coxcomb, scoundrel, ass. Swift liked the word. God forbid that ever such a scoundrel as want should dare to approach you. End of footnote. Johnson had with him upon this jaunt Il Palmarino di Inglaterra, a romance praised by Cervantes, but did not like it much. He said he read it for the language by way of preparation for his Italian expedition. We lay this night at Loughborough. On Thursday, March the 28th, we pursued our journey. I mentioned that old Mr. Sheridan complained of the ingratitude of Mr. Wedderburn. Footnote. Boswell implies that Sheridan's pension was partly due to Wedderburn's influence. End of footnote. And General Fraser, who had been much obliged to him when they were young Scotchmen entering upon life in England, Johnson, why, sir, a man is very apt to complain of the ingratitude of those who have risen far above him. A man, when he gets into a higher sphere, into other habits of life, cannot keep up all his former connections. Then, sir, 
those who knew him formerly upon a level with themselves may think that they ought still to be treated as on a level which cannot be and an acquaintance in a former situation may bring out things which it would be very disagreeable to have mentioned before higher company though perhaps everybody knows of them he placed this subject in a new light to me and showed that a man who has risen in the world must not be condemned too harshly for being distant to former acquaintance even though he may have been obliged to them it is no doubt to be wished that a proper degree of attention should be shown by great men to their early friends but if either from obtuse insensibility to difference of situation or presumptuous forwardness which will not submit even to an exterior observance of it the dignity of high place cannot be preserved when they are admitted into the company of those raised above the state in which they once were encroachment must be repelled and the kinder feelings sacrificed to one of the very fortunate persons whom i have mentioned namely mr wedderburn now lord loughborough i must do the justice to relate that i have been assured by another early acquaintance of his old mr macklin who assisted in improving his pronunciation that he found him very grateful macklin i suppose had not pressed upon his elevation with so much eagerness as the gentleman who complained of him dr johnson's remark as to the jealousy entertained of our friends who rise far above us is certainly very just by this was withered the early friendship between charles townsend and akenside and many similar instances might be adduced footnote akenside in his ode to townsend says for not imprudent of my loss to come i saw from contemplation's quiet cell his feet ascending to another home where public praise and envied greatness dwell he had however no misgivings for he thus ends then for the guerdon of my lay this man with faithful friendship will i say from youth to honoured age my arts and me hath viewed End of footnote. he said it is commonly a weak man who marries for love we then talked of marrying women of fortune and i mentioned a common remark that a man may be upon the whole richer by marrying a woman with a very small portion because a woman of fortune will be proportionally expensive whereas a woman who brings none will be very moderate in expenses johnson depend upon it sir this is not true a woman of fortune being used to the handling of money spends it judiciously but a woman who gets the command of money for the first time upon her marriage has such a gust in spending it that she throws it away with great profusion he praised the ladies of the present age insisting that they were more faithful to their husbands and more virtuous in every respect than in former times because their understandings were better cultivated footnote 
we have now more knowledge generally diffused all our ladies read now which is a great extension and a footnote it was an undoubted proof of his good sense and good disposition that he was never querulous never prone to inveigh against the present times as is so common when superficial minds are on the fret on the contrary he was willing to speak favourably of his own age and indeed maintained its superiority in every respect except in its reverence for government the relaxation of which he imputed as its grand cause to the shock which our monarchy received at the revolution though necessary and secondly to the timid concessions made to faction by successive administrations in the reign of his present majesty i am happy to think that he lived to see the crown at last recover its just influence at leicester we read in the newspaper that dr james was dead footnote newberry the publisher was the vendor of dr james famous powder it was known that on the doctor's death a chemist whom he had employed meant to try to steal the business under the pretence that he alone knew the secret of the preparation a supply of powders enough to last for many years was laid in by newbury in anticipation while james left an affidavit that the chemist was never employed in the manufacture he however asserted that james was deprived of his mental faculties when the affidavit was made evidence against this was collected and published the conclusion to the preface being written by johnson End of footnote. i thought that the death of an old schoolfellow and one with whom he had lived a good deal in london would have affected my fellow-traveller much but he only said ah poor jamie afterwards however when we were in the chaise he said with more tenderness since i set out on this jaunt i have lost an old friend and a young one dr james and poor harry meaning mr thrale's son footnote johnson wrote to mrs thrale on the birth of a second son who died early i congratulate you upon your boy but you must not think that i shall love him all at once as well as i love harry for harry you know is so rational i shall love him by degrees a week after harry's death he wrote i loved him as i never expect to love any other little boy but i could not love him as a parent End of footnote. having lain at st albans on thursday march the twenty eighth we breakfasted the next morning at barnet i expressed to him a weakness of mind which i could not help an uneasy apprehension that my wife and children who were at a great distance from me might perhaps be ill sir said he consider how foolish you would think it in them to be apprehensive that you are ill footnote 
Johnson had known this anxiety. He wrote to Mrs. Thrale from Ashbourne on July the 7th, 1775, I cannot think why I hear nothing from you. I hope and fear about my dear friends at Streatham, but I may have a letter this afternoon. Sure it will bring me no bad news. End of footnote. This sudden turn relieved me for the moment, but I afterwards perceived it to be an ingenious fallacy. I might, to be sure, be satisfied that they had no reason to be apprehensive about me, because I knew that I myself was well, but we might have a mutual anxiety without the charge of folly, because each was, in some degree, uncertain as to the condition of the other. I enjoyed the luxury of our approach to London, that metropolis which we both loved so much, for the high and varied intellectual pleasure which it furnishes. I experienced immediate happiness while whirled along with such a companion, and said to him, Sir, you observed one day at General Oglethorpe's that a man is never happy for the present but when he is drunk. Will you not add, or when driving rapidly in a post-chaise? Johnson. No, sir, you are driving rapidly from something, or to something. Talking of melancholy, he said, some men, and very thinking men, too, have not those vexing thoughts. Footnote. The phrase, Vexing thoughts is, I think, very expressive. It has been familiar to me from my childhood, for it is to be found in the Psalms in metre, used in the churches, I believe I should say Kirks, of Scotland. Why art thou then cast down, my soul? What should discourage thee? And why with vexing thoughts art thou disquieted in me? Some allowance must no doubt be made for early prepossession, but at a maturer period of life, after looking at various metrical versions of the Psalms, I am well satisfied that the version used in Scotland is, upon the whole, the best, and that it has in general a simplicity and unction of sacred poesy, and in many parts its transfusion is admirable. Boswell End of footnote. Sir Joshua Reynolds is the same all the year round. Footnote. Burke and Reynolds are the same one day as another, Johnson said. Boswell celebrates Reynolds' equal and placid temper. On August the 12th, 1775, he wrote to Temple, It is absurd to hope for continual happiness in this life. Few men, if any, enjoy it. I have a kind of belief that Edmund Burke does. He has so much knowledge, so much animation, and the consciousness of so much fame. End of footnote. Beauclerk, except when ill and in pain, is the same. But I believe most men have them in the degree in which they are capable of having them. If I were in the country and were distressed by that malady, I would force myself to take a book, and every time I did it, I should find it the easier. 
melancholy indeed should be diverted by every means but drinking we stopped at messrs dilly's booksellers in the poultry from whence he hurried away in a hackney coach to mr thrale's in the borough i called at his house in the evening having promised to acquaint mrs williams of his safe return when to my surprise i found him sitting with her at tea and as i thought not in a very good humour for it seems when he had got to mr thrale's he found the coach was at the door waiting to carry mrs and miss thrale and signor baretti their italian master to bath footnote baretti says that mrs thrale abruptly proposed to start for bath as wishing to avoid the sight of the funeral she had no man-friend to go with her and so he offered his services johnson at that moment arrived i expected that he would spare me the jaunt and go himself to bath with her but he made no motion to that effect it was on the evening of the twenty-ninth that boswell found johnson as he thought not in very good humour yet on the thirtieth he wrote to mrs thrale and called on mr thrale on april the first and april the fourth he again wrote to mrs thrale he would have gone a second time he says to see mr thrale had he not been made to understand that when he was wanted he would be sent for End of footnote. this was not showing the attention which might have been expected to the guide philosopher and friend the imlac who had hastened from the country to console a distressed mother who he understood was very anxious for his return footnote imlac consoles the princess for the loss of pekua when the clouds of sorrow gather over us we see nothing beyond them nor can imagine how they will be dispelled yet a new day succeeded to the night and sorrow is never long without a dawn of ease but they who restrain themselves from receiving comfort do as the savages would have done had they put out their eyes when it was dark keep yourself busy wrote johnson to mrs thrale and you will in time grow cheerful new prospects may open and new enjoyments may come within your reach End of footnote. they had i found without ceremony proceeded on their intended journey i was glad to understand from him that it was still resolved that his tour to italy with mr and mrs thrale should take place of which he had entertained some doubt on account of the loss which they had suffered and his doubts afterwards proved to be well founded he observed indeed very justly that their loss was an additional reason for their going abroad and if it had not been fixed that he should have been one of the party he would force them out but he would not advise them unless his advice was asked lest they might suspect that he recommended what he wished on his own account i was not pleased that his intimacy with mr thrale's family though it no doubt contributed much to his comfort and enjoyment was not without some degree of restraint not 
as has been grossly suggested, that it was required of him as a task to talk for the entertainment of them and their company, but that he was not quite at his ease, which, however, might partly be owing to his own honest pride, that dignity of mind which is always jealous of appearing too compliant. On Sunday, March 31st, I called on him and showed him as a curiosity which I had discovered, his translation of Lobo's account of Abyssinia, which Sir John Pringle had lent me, it being then little known as one of his works. Footnote. It was reprinted in 1789. End of footnote. He said, Take no notice of it, or don't talk of it. He seemed to think it beneath him, though done at six-and-twenty. I said to him, your style, sir, is much improved since you translated this. He answered with a sort of triumphant smile. Sir, I hope it is. On Wednesday, April the 3rd, in the morning I found him very busy putting his books in order, and as they were generally very old ones, clouds of dust were flying around him. He had on a pair of large gloves such as hedgers use. His present appearance put me in mind of my uncle, Dr. Boswell's description of him, a robust genius, born to grapple with whole libraries. I gave him an account of a conversation which had passed between me and Captain Cook the day before, at dinner at Sir John Pringle's, and he was much pleased with the conscientious accuracy of that celebrated circumnavigator who set me right as to many of the exaggerated accounts given by Dr. Hawksworth of his voyages. I told him that while I was with the captain, I catched the enthusiasm of curiosity and adventure, and felt a strong inclination to go with him on his next voyage. Footnote. In like manner, he writes, I catched for the moment an enthusiasm with respect to visiting the wall of China. Johnson had had some desire to go upon Cook's expedition in 1772. End of footnote. Johnson, why, sir, a man does feel so till he considers how very little he can learn from such voyages. Boswell, but one is carried away with the general grand and indistinct notion of a voyage round the world. Johnson, Yes, sir, but a man is to guard himself against taking a thing in general. I said I was certain that a great part of what we are told by the travellers to the South Sea must be conjecture, because they had not enough of the language of those countries to understand so much as they have related. Objects falling under the observation of the senses might be clearly known, but everything intellectual, everything abstract, politics, morals, and religion, must be darkly guessed. Dr. Johnson was of the same opinion. He, upon another occasion, when a friend mentioned to him several extraordinary facts, as communicated to him by the circumnavigators, slyly observed, Sir, I never before knew how much I was respected by these gentlemen. They told me none of these things. 
He had been in company with Omai, a native of one of the South Sea Islands, after he had been some time in this country. He was struck with the elegance of his behaviour, and accounted for it thus. Sir, he had passed his time while in England, only in the best company, so that all he had acquired of our manners was genteel. As a proof of this, sir, Lord Mulgrave and he dined one evening at Streatham. They sat with their backs to the light fronting me, so that I could not see distinctly, and there was so little of the savage in Omai that I was afraid to speak to either, lest I should mistake one for the other. Footnote. Madame D'Arblay describes the perfect case with which Omai managed a sword which he had received from the king, and which he had that day put on for the first time in order to go to the House of Lords. He is the gentle savage in Cowper's task. End of footnote. End of section one.